Okay, we are one minute past the hour, so we're ready to get started. Thanks for joining, everybody. I don't have any uh, particular announcements to make, so I won't waste any of your time, and we'll let Robert get started with our transition from Genesis to Acts. Yep. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, Today, I am going to cover the little tail end of Genesis that we didn't discuss last time, but it should be brief. And then we are going to introduce the book of Acts And then starting next week, we should finally follow our regular pattern where we read scripture and then discuss it. And I know, well, I don't know, but I suppose everybody must be ready for that. Believe me, I am as well. That is easier on my side too, to have kind of this set, uh, you know, kind of rhythm. Um, So last, last time that it's a little bit weird. Well, Let's wrap up the discussion of Genesis. Really, there was only one point I didn't get to make last time that I think is really important. That's why I don't just want to skip it. And uh, to do that, then let me do a very brief summary of what we covered, and we'll do that last point. So um, if if you happen to listen last week, you know that I took a minimum facts approach to Genesis. What I mean by that, minimum facts is a type of argument when you make the argument from the facts that everyone agrees on, not all possible facts that you could make an argument for, just those that are essentially generally accepted. Um, And that's kind of what I'm doing with Genesis in the sense that I want to cover the main lessons that pretty much any Christian throughout history would agree with. Um, and, And so really that's kind of five things that I pulled out of the text. I'll, I'll say this one more time. I'm not saying that these are all the lessons you can pull out of the text, just kind of the main ones that I think most people would agree with. Uh, number one, there's one God. You know, the way I presented this last time is that in, in Genesis, we see no theogony, so no genealogy of gods, no theomachy, that is no conflict between gods, and no deicide, that is the death of a god. Uh, there's none of that. In the beginning, God, right? There's just the one God. And monotheism was certainly radical at the time, to be frank, it's still in a sense radical today um, because, um, you know, polytheism certainly has not gone out of style. Now, last time Matt asked if if Genesis was the first ever monotheistic text I still don't know the answer to that. That you know, there's so many different myths from different parts of the world that I, I don't know. There could be some something from like Polynesia or something. So I've not been able to confirm that. But what I didn't say last time that I did want to add is that all of the major monotheistic religions do go back to Genesis. Um, of course, that would be Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So they all go back to this one text. No other monotheistic text, if it exists out there, has created major religions. Uh, God is not like nature, was the other point that I made. In the in the other texts from that region, from that time, we see that the difference between the gods and creation is unclear. Uh, you know, like, um, like we read that the earth is made out of Tiamat's body, out of her corpse. So, Tiamat is a god, but it's all like her body can be the earth. What you know, like I said, the the distinction between God and creation is is just murky. Also, some natural phenomenons are 
one with a god in some way, like nighttime is is a god of the night. Um, in what way? It's really kind of hard to explain. Um, but again, in Genesis, we don't see any of that. God speaks creation into being. God is a transcendent being that, um, you know, is separate and apart from creation. Uh, we could say creation is not divine. And in a sense, God is not natural in the sense that he is distinct and transcendent from anything natural, anything that is created. Um, and I made the point that if we are willing to take the entire council of scripture into account and a little bit of theology, we really could say more about this create this transcendent creator. It would be somebody who is uncreated, uh, a being that would be necessary, in fact, a being that could not not exist, a being that is unchanging and in whose character goodness is rooted. Then the third point was that nature is not spiritual. Um, that, you know, I always, I always find that people kind of miss this in Genesis, right? There's not a spirit of the water or a spirit of the air and so forth. Now, by the way, I'm not denying that there is an unseen, unseen realm that, you know, there are demons and angels, but they're not one with nature, right? There's no angel of the waters or whatever. Um, and this is one of the foundations of science, the fact that the world behaves according to impersonal principles. And because they're impersonal, they can be relied upon to act consistently anywhere. What I mean by that, if, if I do an experiment here today, um, and I do the same experiment in China tomorrow, the results should be the same, of course, unless the experiment depends on whatever, a precise magnetic field that exists here, not there, but you get what I mean. Um, and the other actually foundational idea of science, which to us seems so obvious, but it's really not obvious, is that the world was designed by a mind that is not completely unlike our minds, so we can expect the world to be intelligible, something that we can make sense out of. And that is certainly not an assumption that the ancients had. The Greeks did not have this the Chinese did not have this. This is a very unusual um, philosophical assumption. Um, and the last thing that I covered is the idea of man being made in the image of God and really kind of the purpose of man uh, altogether, which is man is made, or let me backtrack a little bit. In other stories, we see that man is created to do the work that the gods don't want to do anymore, like quite literally digging ditches. In Genesis, man is created in the image of God. It is created to be fruitful and multiply and to rule the earth. So, um, you know, to put it in very kind of basic terms, we're made to marry, have children, to work, right? That To rule the earth, that involves work. We're made to work. And we are made to be God's representative on earth. Now, um, to be God's representative on earth, there has to be something special about us, right? Because essence always precedes function. And I suggested that the proper way to understand that is ontological personalism, which is that we are a rational soul. We don't just have rational capabilities. You know, it's not about our ability, but truly about our essence. Essentially, we have a soul. And that makes us a person. Uh, we have a 
human soul. Um, that so those are the main points. And the last point that I didn't get to cover, but like I said, I I needed to take time to do this because I, I feel like it's very important to understand the Christian narrative. And that is that the original plan was good, but then the fall happened. And this is the kind of thing that we could spend days on. So doing a summarized version of, of all this stuff is tricky. Um, but let me let me do my best at it. I used a text or a book, I should say, by uh, Sandra Richter. It's called The Epic of Eden. I used it when we were covering John as well. She has a very good way of explaining things in a narrative way. Um, and she essentially, you know, she she points out the fact that creation does not involve just six days. There is a seventh day. Sometimes we forget about that. And you might reply, well, but on the seventh day, nothing happened. True. In, in a way, but it does tell us something about creation. On the seventh day, God rests, right? And so essentially God can finally stop and just rule over all of creation. And that, that ruling can happen because there is peace between creation and God. Everything is as it should be. And that is at least part of the message that the seventh day is communicating to us. Uh, so I'm going to read here a, a a text real quick. So in some Genesis one tells us of God's first perfect plan, a flawlessly ordered world infused with balance and productivity. Here, every rock plant and animal had its own designated place within God's design. A God ordained space in which each could thrive, reproduce and serve the good of the whole. And we see from the structure of Genesis one, that the force that held this peaceful and productive cohabitation and balance was Yahweh's sovereignty over all. But as day 6b makes clear, God chose to manage this creation through his representative, Adam. Adam is the pronunciation in, in Hebrew, right? Thus, humanity is given all authority to protect, maintain, and develop God's great gift under God's ultimate authority. This is who Yahweh is, who, who, who humanity is, and how both relate to the creation. And regardless of how you choose to harmonize science in the Bible, this message is clearly part of the intent of Genesis 1. I would say it is the primary intent. That's her speaking, not me, but I, I would agree with that. Um, so, the, you know, the, the original plan for everything was this, this perfect harmony where everything would do its function, its purpose, uh, as it was intended. And really, and I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but when we speak of heaven, right, when we speak of the end of the story, it is to return to that. It is to go back to a state, not in the clouds, playing harps all day or just singing a hymn all day. No, that those are kind of Hollywood mischaracterizations of, of heaven. It is to go back to this world where everything is exactly as intended. Um, and so um, what what went wrong, right? What is the problem? Um, and I'm going to read here another text. You may have noticed that my description, this is her description, of Genesis 1 sounds a lot like the relationship between a vassal and his suzerain, a relationship in which the vassal is given full autonomy within the confines of his overlord's authority. When this reading of Genesis 1 is wedded to Genesis 2, the profile of covenant becomes even clearer. Okay, so I, of course, I cut out a lot of the background in her book, but she's talking about covenant, 
which normally would describe as this relationship between a vassal and the suzerain. The suzerain is like the king, the emperor, the ruler, the more powerful nation. Um, and so essentially she's making the point that in Genesis 1 and 2, we see a covenant. And this is very important because covenant is kind of the main theme of the book of Genesis. We see this idea of covenant resurfacing all over the place. Um, so, and, and she says, you know, then the Lord, uh, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. Uh, these, they're, these were typical words of covenant used in ancient times. In addition to this perfect place, Adam and Eve are given each other. And as, and as is implied in Genesis 3.8, they're given full access to their loving creator. The only corner of the garden which was not theirs to use and enjoy was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. In essence, Adam and Eve are free to do anything except decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. Yahweh reserves the right and the responsibility to name those truths himself. This was Adam and Eve's perfect world, not just fruit and fig leaves, but an entire race of people stretching their cognitive and creative powers to the limit to build a society of balance and justice and joy. Here, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve would learn life at the feet of the Father, build their city in the shadow of the Almighty, create and design and expand within the protective confines of His kingdom. The blessing of this gift, a civilization without greed, malice or envy, progress without pollution, expansion without extension. Can you imagine it? This was God's perfect plan. The people of God in the place of God, dwelling in the presence of God. Yet, as with all covenants, God's perfect plan was dependent on the choice of the vassal. Humanity must be willing, must willingly submit to the plan of God. The steward must choose this world. For in God's perfect plan, the steward had been given the authority to reject it. And that is the fall, right? It is the rejection of God. It is to say, no, God, not your way. It will be my way, which is another, say, it's another way of saying, I shall decide what is right, not you. And my definition of what is right is not like your definition. And I'm speaking to God in my example. It's not like, you know, God's definition of what is right. That is the essence of the fall it is this disobedience and um you know traditionally of course in christian in christian belief we say that this fall affected everything affected not just people but creation itself everything becomes fallen because of that and um humanity has been so to speak uh inclined towards evil, towards self-rule, towards rejecting uh, God's definition of good and evil. Um, and of course, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you know that all of these things have fancy terms or whatever, but I'm trying to tell the story just like that, like a story. Um, and so with the fall comes a problem, you know, can we be redeemed? Can we be restored to the garden when God's condition to be in the garden was do not essentially uh, reject me. Do not reject my definition of, of good and evil. And I will read here one last paragraph, and then I'll, I'll bring our discussion of Genesis to an end. God's perfect plan and humanity's perfect world was a matter of choice. Did Adam want this world or one of their own making? 
that once made in the image of God could not be forced or coerced, but instead were called upon to choose their sovereign, and choose they did. Whenever I think of this moment, the lyrics of Don Francisco's old folk song echo in my mind, and all their unborn children die as both of them bow down to Satan's hand. God's original intent was sabotage by humanity, stolen by the enemy. Adam rejected the covenant, and all the cosmos trembled. Genesis 2.17 makes it painfully clear what the consequences of such an insurrection would be. In that day, you shall surely die. But amazingly, mercifully, even though Yahweh had every right to wipe out a rebellious race, he chose another course, redemption. In a move that continues to confound me, God spared the lives of Adam and Eve and their unborn children by redirecting the fury of the curse towards another, the battered flesh of his own son. This is the, the one the New Testament knows as the last Adam. And although the first Adam did not die, the second surely did. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. And of course, in this case, because we've studied John, we, studied, we started with John instead of Genesis. Uh, we're in a sense going back, right, to last year. Somebody had to pay the price for this rebellion and that is what Jesus did. And so he was able to reconcile us to God. And think about it. What is it that Jesus did? He said, Lord, your will be done, right? God, your will be done. That is what Adam and Eve should have done, but they did not. And so there's the beginning of the story and the end of the story. You know, you could add a little bit to the story in the sense that eventually the end will come and in heaven it will be a, a, a reality, certainly. Um, but there you go, the first Adam and the last Adam, and that is how they connect. And of course, the reason I wanted to cover all this is because it, I find that the gospel doesn't shine as bright if we don't understand the beginning of the story, if we don't understand the problem. And I realized that if we just jump from John to Acts and don't discuss this at all, Acts might make even less sense, um, no, not that it wouldn't make sense at all, but again, it just would not shine as brightly. So I hope that that uh, has been a worthwhile excursus into Genesis. And uh, let me jump now into Acts. Let me introduce Acts. And today, uh, I don't think I have near as much material as other night, so maybe we can have a little bit more discussion. I don't know. I say that and then people go completely silent and there's no discussion, but... <laughs> Okay, so let me uh, have an abrupt uh, break here and let's introduce Acts. Now, probably to the worry of everyone, um, when we jump into a new text, we should ask the question of genre. <laughs> but don't worry, that with Acts, the question of genre is, uh, is pretty simple. It's, or in the sense that there's hardly a question. Um, what I'm asking is what style of writing is Acts, right? If we're going to study it, that, that really should be the first question. Uh, virtually everyone agrees that Acts is narrating history, okay? The only, I find to be very nuanced debate, is whether Acts is in the realm of historiography or biography. Now, when I use the term historiography instead of just history, it's not because I want to sound fancy or whatever. It's because I want to make a distinction between a style of writing that means to convey history, a genre of writing, as opposed to 
whether what it is writing is true or not, right? What I mean by that is um, you could attempt to narrate history and get it wrong. That would still be historiography. It would just be false historiography, right? Like if I said, and I hate to bring up politics, that's Matt's realm, but if I, if, you know, if I was telling you about January 6th and I said, and Brian Sidnick was killed or whatever in January 6th, clearly what I'm telling you his, is historiography is I'm trying to narrate historical events, but maybe I get it wrong. And that is just false historiography. Okay. But point being, whether you agree that Acts is true or not, it most certainly it is attempting to describe historical events. Now, what about this, this distinction between historiography and biography? The only reason this could matter is when you're asking yourself, hmm, I wonder why the author told us this much information, but then omitted, for example, this other information. Well, if you decide that this is really a biography, let's say, of the story of Paul, then you might answer the question one way. If you think that this is a historical account, say, about the early church, you might answer that question differently. So essentially, it could slightly change your interpretation of the text, but it's so slight that I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. I'll just cover it briefly. Um, the or So, you know, let me, let me put the question in a very simple way. Is Acts the story of Paul, or you could say the story of Peter and then the story of Paul as in a dual biography, or is it the story of the early church, biography or historiography? Uh, people who say Acts is a biography, essentially they're trying to keep the same genre be between the Gospel of Luke, which was also written by the same author, and Acts. So both texts would be in the same style. Um, and certainly the book of Acts does focus quite a bit on a couple of people. Um, it The book has about the correct, the correct length for an ancient biography. Um, but it, you know, it, really this is not an argument that many scholars are going to buy because at the end of the day, uh, the book is not about one person at most, and it would be two people that it focuses on. And really the text keeps going back to the development and growth of quote-unquote the way, that is the church. Uh, it uses people like Peter and Paul as major characters, but it certainly seems more interested in the gospel expansion. In fact, the climax of the text is the gospel reaching Rome, not somebody's, not, not an individual's great accomplishment. Um, as far as why we would think that the text is historiography, which again, just about everyone agrees on. So I don't know that I truly have to make an argument, but just for the sake of, of completeness, um, the, it, it's, it's pretty clear that this is what we call a historical monograph, which is to say this is a one-volume hist historical text. In the ancient world, you certainly have many kind of histories that take multiple volumes. Um, that's not the case here. In the single-volume histories tended to focus on a particular topic instead of just an age, like what happened from this year to that year. And let me tell you just all the events in sequence. It is about a certain movement. And um, we will notice that unlike in a novel, Luke uses sources abundantly. These sources are very clear in the gospel. They're harder to identify in Acts. It's not to say that they're not there. They're just not as 
again, as distinct, where we can say clearly he's quoting from here or from there. Um, Luke claims to investigate the sources. Uh, he includes long speeches, and long speeches were actually very common in historical texts in the ancient world and not in other ones, not even biographies normally. Um, then Luke also places his events within other uh, world history events, a feature that is almost exclusive to uh, historiography and not other genres of text. Um, so yes, for all those reasons and more, this is history. Now again, you could say that this is false history if you don't believe it, uh, but it's, uh, it's clearly attempting to convey history at any rate. Now, one little caveat here is that just because we say that this is historiography or history, um, we should not assume that the way people wrote history back in the day is the same as the way that we would write history today. Um, ancient histories had more of a focus on, on the story, essentially. They wanted to write a cohesive narrative. Um, so they they would structure the text a little bit differently so that it tells this like I, I hate to put it so colloquially but this like fun story that makes a point uh, whereas a modern historian may emphasize more precision and more kind of technical writing uh, because they're not really trying to create an engaging narrative Keep in mind that these, particularly a one-volume text, a historical monograph, it probably would be read in one sitting. Um, not always, but but it would not be unusual for, for somebody to just read it, and that would take a few hours, and you're not going to uh, keep your audience engaged if it's just like, on this date, this happened, and on this date, this happened, right? Um, then what about the date of Acts? And by that, I mean, when was it written? There are possibly four views on that, um, and I'm only going to discuss the two main views. Um, and then if you would like to research the other ones, of course, that you're, you're more than welcome to, but that's kind of on you. Um, generally speaking, the text is dated between 64 AD and 90 AD. And then the fourth, and by that, three of the positions dated in that range then the fourth position would date the text to early second century. Um, now, if we go by order of proponents, uh, the most agreed upon position is, quote unquote, the centrist view that would date the text to between 70 or somewhere in the 70s and the 80s. Then the second most popular view would date the text in the 60s, prior to 70 AD. So let me discuss both of those um, briefly, and then I'm actually going to give you my personal opinion on this. <laughs> um, so let me start with the second most popular view, which is that the text was written pre-70. Now, what is the importance of the year 70? That is when Israel fell, right? Um, that's when it was destroyed by the Romans. Um, and so... Essentially, the, the question or the argument that people make for a pre-70 date is that this is such an important event. 
why would Acts not include it, right? Like, if Acts had been written after the year 70 AD, it certainly would include this event. Um, now, that's not the only argument. The other very powerful argument is the last third of the book is dealing with the trial of Paul. Well, guess what? Paul is executed in that part is not included in Acts. So how come the book spends a third of, you know, of its of its text discussing this trial and then just doesn't give you the ending to it? So what what many people believe is the book was written before the death of Paul and before the fall of Jerusalem. Um now People, how might you respond to these arguments? Well, you might say that for historical text to to have this like sudden ending was not unusual in the ancient world. Examples you could use would actually be the Gospel of Mark, and another example from like the Greek world you could use uh, Thucydides' uh, text on the. Uh, Peloponnesian War, the like that that second text I mentioned ends without the end of the war. You know, <laughs> um, now um, it you could also say that the reason that Luke does not include those events in his text is because they don't fit the text. For example, the text is about martyrdom, so it was it was more important to highlight that in the life of of Paul than it was to share the ending because the ending would have been known by the audience as well. Um, and, you know, the, really the real climax of the text is the gospel reaching Rome, not the death of Paul. Yeah, that would be some of the counter-arguments. Counter um, now, why would somebody say that the text was written post, or at least published, post-70 AD? Um, well, and that would be because most scholars agree that Luke was was basing his text at least partly on the Gospel of Mark, and Mark was dating his, or was not dating, rather, uh, was basing his text on the teachings of Peter, and so Mark published his, his um, um, Gospel after the death of Peter, and then Luke would have written after that, and so almost by necessity, that would put the text uh, in in you know somewhere post seventy AD. Um, also, uh, many scholars believe that when in Luke chapter twenty one, which we will cover we will cover later, of course, uh, Luke is talking about the fall of Jerusalem. Um, he the fall of Jerusalem had already happened, and that's why Luke chapter 21 speaks of it in in a way that is very kind of specific, in it, and it seems like, like Luke already knows uh, what had happened uh, as written in the future, in a sense, from that event. Um, now, you could make particularly counter-argument to that, that in Luke, uh, oh, sorry, and I said we would cover Luke chapter 21. No, we won't. We're going to cover Acts, but not Luke. Um, you could make that, or, or you could respond that what you find in that chapter 21 essentially is borrowing from other prophecies 
in believing in Jesus's words, and it it by no means implies that the event had already happened. Essentially, this was a prophecy that a prophecy that became fulfilled later, and the language used is consistent with even older Jewish texts in the Septuagint. So, um, long story short, regardless of whether you agree with one position or the other, we can all, or most of us anyway, can agree that the text was written before the year 90 AD or so. Um, and so it is a very, very early text. That's incredibly important to its reliability. If the book of Acts was all made up nonsense, people at the time would have said that. People at the time would have said this is made up nonsense. Uh, but we don't see that. Uh, particularly, you could take a Jewish historian like Josephus. Josephus published after, um, you know, year nine or so. And so presumably Josephus's publications would have would have decried all this as fake. Um, now, I to be honest, and not that this matters at all, not that my opinion really matters, but I am on the pre-70 AD uh, you know, side of this discussion because I find the counter arguments to this idea that Luke certainly would have mentioned the fall of Jerusalem and the death of Paul if they had already happened. I find that I find those to be convincing. Like the, this idea that, well, Luke, you know, Luke's audience would have known that Paul had already died. And so he didn't have to say it. It's like if I if I spend a third of my writing to his trial, I'm going to include the ending. Like it, I find it unfathomable that he wouldn't. And also, when part of the early church is a prophecy about essentially the fall of Jerusalem, um, you know, Jesus in the Gospels, he's like, before this generation has passed away, all of these things will happen, and then they happened. Um, I again, I find it unconscionable. That, that Luke would not put that in Acts and essentially kind of brag about it <laughs> because it was such confirmation of what Jesus had said. Like it, But again, my opinion counts for very little, um, but I do think that this is a pre-70 text. Uh, and in fact, it would be an early 60s text because I would date it to before the, the, the death of Paul. Uh, but, oh well. Um, I will say, just for you to know, people who date the text, particularly in the second century, that is because um, those are people who who certainly do not believe that the text is uh, God-inspired. They don't believe that the text is true. So they have to explain how these miracles, these fake elements, what they would believe to be fake. No, I don't believe that. Um, how they made it into the text. Well, to get those mythological elements, not as genre, but as to mean fake, um, you need time. So they say, well, surely the text actually came out uh, even later when people were at liberty to make up all of these miracles and things that didn't really happen. Um, but I, I, I do want to point out that they don't have a good historical reason to do that. They just, they start from the standpoint that the miracles must be fake. So how can we explain them if they must be fake? Okay. Uh, finally, to the author of uh, Luke and Acts, so I, I mentioned this earlier, Luke and Acts are written by the same person. Virtually everyone agrees on that. Now, 
sadly, not everyone agrees on who the author is uh, because in this day and age, no one agrees on literally anything. Um, but um, uh, the vast majority of scholars would agree that the writer was a Gentile, so not a, not a Jewish person. And then a majority, but not the vast majority of scholars would agree that it was in fact Luke. Uh, so let's talk about that last part. Is it Luke the physician? So there's a Luke the physician who is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, who was a fellow traveler of Paul. And traditionally, we have said this is the Luke who wrote Luke and Acts. Um, well, is, is that the case? Do we have good reason to believe that that is the case? Well, first of all, in Acts, we will notice that the author describes himself as somebody who is with Paul, a fellow traveler. He will use the voice, we, as in we did this, we did that. So, um, you know, if we take the text like we would any other historical text of the time, we would say, yes, the person who wrote it is a fellow traveler of Paul. Um, now, we also have external evidence that would confirm this. In essentially all early evidence, and I do mean all of it, points to Luke being the writer. Uh, we have some of the very early church fathers uh, who explicitly say that, like Irenaeus, for example, in the year about 180 AD, uh, but you would also have Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, and others. Not only that, but we have a very early manuscript uh, of about 200 AD, uh, give or take 25 years, uh, that refers to the Gospel of Luke as exactly that, the Gospel according to Luke. And remember, we were pretty certain, essentially, that the Gospel according to Luke and Acts were written by the same person. So if the Gospel was written by Luke, so was Acts. Um, now, why would people deny, then, that Luke is the author? And that is because some people argue that nobody who was a true co-traveler of Paul would get Paul so wrong. They argue that the way that essentially the theology in Acts is inconsistent with the theology of the letters of Paul. So clearly this was not really a fellow traveler. He would have understood Paul better. Now we are going to examine that assertion later as we go through through the book of Acts. Um, but you know that that's not you know that's not that argument has not convinced the majority of scholars. It probably won't convince us either, but I do want to be fair and tell you what the reason is. Uh, finally, you know, is the author Gentile or Jew? Not that this matters a great deal, but uh, most, most people think that the author is a Gentile, um, whether they agree that it's Luke or not. And this, now, this Gentile probably grew up in or familiar with the Jewish community and text. The author of Luke and Acts uh, demonstrates an incredible knowledge of the Septuagint, which, rem remember, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament writings. Okay, And that's what essentially Jews at the time would have been familiar with, because remember that Jews at the time, they spoke Aramaic, and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Now, also, to be fair, before I'm, I'm called a liar over here, uh, Jews at the time, particularly the boys, they were supposed to learn Hebrew so they could read their scriptures in Hebrew. 
but many of them, particularly if they grew up in the diaspora, meaning they grew up outside of Israel in the Greek world, uh, they probably were more familiar with Greek than they would have been with Hebrew. Um, so probably, probably a Gentile. And finally, the last point, what is the intended audience of this text? The very first or second verse, I think it's the very first verse, but um, it, it actually has an intended audience. Um, it says, I wrote the former account, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, and it goes on. Um, so the text is addressed to this person. And the, this gives us a little bit of an insight. Uh, it seems like this, this patron of Luke is, is kind of a well-to-do person. Now, that does not necessarily mean the text was written for well-to-do people. Um, sometimes a patron would sponsor a work that would be read to a vast audience. So maybe Luke wrote this for, you know, for people who were quote-unquote commoners. That's not what the, that's not the scholarly term, but uh, that's not the question. Now, when you look at the text, both how it is written, the fact that it uses formal rhetoric, it, and the, the contents of the text, the way that it discusses wealth, and the fact that it discusses wealth more than any other text um, in the New Testament, I mean, it, it does make you think that at least Luke was expecting a relatively educated audience and perhaps with some level of wealth. Again, this information to me is largely immaterial except for maybe one thing we can take away from that, which is I think we, we can notice that Luke was not writing to uh, an audience that was trying to separate itself from culture. Uh, not not in a like a monastic way. I mean, maybe they were trying not to be like the culture in this in the sense that they did not want to sin, that they did not want to com commit, you know, kind of debauchery and all those things. In that sense, certainly. But I mean, these were people living in the world, like in the culture, and Luke knew that. And Luke does not kind of call these people to create their own separate community. He addresses them in that situation and assumes that that situation will continue. And that I do think that that is a very, very important observation. Probably his audience was in the, in the um, kind of Roman part of the Greek cities, like Corinth and Philippi. And um, his audience would have involved both Gentiles and Jews because uh, that's how the gospel spread. Essentially, it would be out of Jewish communities uh, Jewish prayer groups or synagogues that Gentiles would be added. And, and so what an early church would have involved many, many Gentiles, but still kind of this Jewish uh, contingent within it. So um, that is our introduction to, to the book of, of Acts and our end of Genesis. So with that, I'll turn it over for, for questions of, or comments. Thanks, Robert. As always, guys, if you have a question or a, a point to offer for discussion, just write the word question in the chat. And I'll bring you in in the order in which we receive those requests. Um, Robert, what I'd like to ask about, because I, I on several of these points, I hear you saying, well, this is kind of immaterial or this is not that important. But and so I'm trying to understand, are these merely matters of academic dispute or are these 
a lot of these items substantive in that they would change our understanding of the text. So, um, for example, like the, the bibli or biography rather, or his historiography, like what type of text it is. Is that a matter of just academic debate or depending on if it's one or another, would that change the meaning of the text itself? It, like I said, that debate is probably the most nuanced one. It could change the meaning of the text, uh, but very slightly. Um, and let me connect it, for example, to the dating of the text. If you believe that the text is a biography, then I think almost certainly the text was written before before 64 AD, I think is when we date the death of Paul. Don't, don't quote me on that. I think that's correct. Um, because if this is a biography and Paul had died already, certainly it would be mentioned in the text, right? But if it's historiography, meaning it really has to do with the church getting to Rome, it's not about Paul, then it's possible that Paul had died and it's just not relevant to the story. So Luke does not mention it. So it's not, it's not immaterial, but as we read the text, it, it would be rare instances where we would go, well, I really think this is biography, so I'm going to interpret the text this way or that way. Um, so yeah, it, it could matter. And, and just for the sake of completeness, I want to include it at, you know, at the beginning. Now, what really does matter is that everyone agrees that this is relating history. This is not, you know... This is not some kind of analogy or No whatever. more poetry. The poetry's over. Yeah, the poetry's no, over. No snapping That's fingers sure. and such. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. That if, uh, I guess just for me, I, I want to understand that for me as someone who's not really encountered these texts, depending on how I believe them to be contextually, is that going to change how I'm supposed to understand them as we read it? But. Uh, that's probably, I don't know, a degree or two beyond my level of understanding at this point, I suppose. So, and I'll, I'll point it out. Like if, as we, as we go through it, if, if maybe it would make a difference, but, um, I don't know. I feel like when we approach a text, it's kind of the first question we would ask. So sorry, perhaps if I just gave unnecessary detail, that could be. No, I, I totally understand why. Uh, and, and I don't mean to dismiss like academic debate as unimportant, because there's a reason that people uh, go back and forth on all the specific details about this. Obviously, it is an important text, culturally speaking, historically speaking, and of course, uh, in the context of moral guidance, which is the reason that I'm here. And that was uh, one particular point or one one uh, piece of the of the lecture tonight that stuck out to me. It was the it was the sentence about men were free to do anything except decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. I know it's uh, I, I often think like, oh, that that applies so, so strongly to our times right now, clearly that. And I do think that that is the nature of a lot of our immoral behavior, that we think we are that, that we determine what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, that those things aren't defined outside of us, but they're merely just a reflection of whatever whim we feel in the moment. So but I think that's probably been true for all of human history, you know, as as this is looking back at some of the earliest human texts that. That has long been our, our biggest folly, that we think we decide these things instead of something outside of us that preexisted us. But I'm not, I don't, unless you want to chime in on that, that was just my thoughts of appreciation. That point is a key one. Um, uh oh, Robert froze on me. <laughs> is he frozen oh. for you guys? Oh, wait, now he's back. 
Okay, good. I thought I had just stunned you with wisdom, like you were you were stuck in an no. amazed face. Um, that's just kind of a comment from me. I'm not even looking for. And now he lost him again. Now he looks like a painting. Anyway, um, I, I guess I can't really take questions. I suppose I could, but obviously Robert's not going to be able to respond until we get his connection resolved here. But in the interest of moving along, if if uh, okay, there we go, Robert, you back? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I I never lost you, but you lost me. I turned on my hotspot to make sure that if it does go out, I'll return. Okay. Yeah. I, all I was saying was that's just kind of a piece of commentary for me. I'm not necessarily looking for uh, you to answer a question, but just a piece of the study that really stuck out to me. So unless you have thoughts on that, I will just um, I will open it up to questions. Yeah. Sure. Uh, first up is Don't Day Two K. Hey. Thanks. Um, this is an uneducated layman's advocacy to you, Matt, actually, to go ahead, if you haven't already, uh, read through Genesis. Um, and my case, uh, I'll make it on the basis of Robert's uh, great lesson last week, <clears throat> where he um, contrasted the creation narrative of Genesis with a contemporary, was it Babylonian creation narrative, Robert? I think. Anyway, I think he's frozen again. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. Sorry about that. You cut. I mean, he did a great job of contrasting the two, and the Ge- Genesis is radical in that it is God above and apart from nature, of among several points that Robert made. But then, as you read through the more standard, I'll just say, narrative of the rest of Genesis, <clears throat> um, Tucker Carlson has been. Uh, reading through the Old Testament. He read through the New Testament. Now he's doing the Old Testament. And uh, he said in a speech the other week, he said, man, I'm reading the Old Testament. It's like, are you kidding? God chose these people? And that's the beauty of it, is that God chose to work with such painfully, sometimes just disgustingly human people to reveal himself to the world. Um And I'll wrap it up with, um, I was watching just a few days ago uh, a teaching out of, I think it was Genesis uh, 32, uh, about um, Jacob finally releasing himself from the narcissistic, crazy grasp of Laban. It'll all make sense when you read it. But just uh, this rabbi was teaching on it and just pointing out what it was like to get out from under the grips of a horrifically narcissistic individual <laughs> but it's it's so real is what i'm trying to point out here the genesis narrative and as you go on through the rest of the certainly the five books of the old testament um these are real people it's down and dirty it's very human and this this is god's book and to me it's the warts that certify the divinity of the old testament hmm. and then on into the new of course so that's the case i just want to make thank sure you. yeah thank you uh robert i don't know how much of that you were able to hear if any but that was some commentary on, on kind of genesis in a broader context rather than the sort of limited pieces that we encountered but do we have you are you able to chime in no <laughs> okay well that leaves it up to me uh, to be your biblical expert for the evening. But no, even the stuff that that we encountered uh, reading last week, 
Yeah, that stuck out to me. Like I mentioned, um, this is going to be a little bit of repetition for people who were here last week, but I've really only encountered the text in sort of an academic setting in which I was much more skeptical to believe it was just like, oh, that's some old book that's, you know, whatever. It's not it's not really a lot of truth to that. It's just old fairy tales or something. And now I read it and I look at like, okay, here's a fundamental truth. Don't mess with men and women. And they are designed to be with each other for the purpose of having children. Okay, that seems obviously wise now. Likewise, looking at this, I know this wasn't scriptural text, but what I just referenced about, you know, you're free to do whatever you want. You're just not free to define right and wrong for yourself. These sort of fundamental truths that have gone wrong, obviously, at least in my own observation of the world, and it is pretty amazing to come back to this text more open to it uh, and see the fundamental truth that exists in it. You know, even, even beyond just the historical account of say how human life came to be or how the world was populated and all that, but just the moral truth of why these things are right and wrong and and why we ought to believe them in the first place and how we've turned our back on them. But anyway, uh, my point is you're, you're speaking to the areas that interest me. And so I I appreciate the thoughts. Did you have any uh, follow-up before I let you go? Uh, Don't I? Okay. Robert. Matt, can you hear me? Yeah. I've, I was, I've been so nervous. I'm like, okay, here I am running a Bible study discussion, like an absolute buffoon. But no, we had some thoughtful input there. So, no, that's awesome. And I could hear everything you guys said, but for some reason, you guys could not see me or hear me. Does not matter. It's working now. We're going to, yeah, you're fully mobile and I can hear you fine. So you're no longer a painting. Uh, Good. Okay. Uh, next up, I think, is lag. Lag, go ahead. So I have uh, one question and one uh, comment after it. The uh, the question, though, is regarding the Theophilus, the guy who Luke wrote the book, the, the gospel and the, the, the book of Acts for. And that question is, how do we know it is a single individual? I, this question occurs to me whenever I hear the name, because the name Theophilus sounds a lot like it is the combination of the word god theo and the word to love so uh, philia and so ones who love god, or one who loves god so the, the question often occurs to me is how do we know this is a single person and not a title that essentially means anyone who wants to hear uh, um well to be honest with you this is a question i haven't thought a whole lot about because i've never heard of anyone make the case that this is not a single individual um so uh what i'm giving you is just kind of my i don't know what what first comes to mind but it seems to me that the grammar of the text makes it clear that we're speaking to a single individual and not to a group of people right because we're speaking in the singular um and um and then this is just a this is the name of a person like i don't think anybody disputes that this was a personal name okay. um but maybe there's a case out there that i have never heard of so uh, again my i don't know my response is hardly helpful i really yeah. have not thought about this much i haven't heard a case either it's just i've the, the word sounds so much like the combination of the two that it makes me curious um so yeah there was that and then my uh comment the on the question of if uh judaism is the oldest monotheistic religion i don't 
know enough to go super in depth, but I know there is at least a theory and a few books on it that I have been intending to find and read called Original Monotheism, which the best summary I can give at the moment is the idea that rather than everyone being uh, the the earliest uh, tribes of humans being polytheistic, they believed in many spiritual forces, but they all believed that there was this one that was higher and separate from the others um again they, they and the evidence for this seems to be that uh people when studying these unreached groups after talking to them for a long time find hey they've been hiding this sacred being that they think is really important from us because they don't trust us yet so i would need to find more to see what the research is on that, how reliable it is, but that's just a thought to toss out there on that question that came up last week and the beginning tonight. Yeah. Thanks for adding to that. Uh, I appreciate the, the insight. Uh, Robert, do you have any uh, thoughts on that point? No, I, yeah, I don't know enough about that to, to even add to that point. Okay. Thank you. Leg. appreciate it. Uh, Chris is up next. Go ahead, Chris, if you're ready. Hi. Yeah. And thank you guys for the opportunity to, ask a question and it's, it's kind of a comment, but I just want to know um, I just want to put the comment out there and then ask what your thoughts are. So one of the things I really like about the intro to Acts and Luke is, as was mentioned earlier about this person or persons, Theophilus. And uh, to me, that kind of, you know, indicates that it's the same author or, or, or likely to be, but uh, another observation is that, um, you know, Luke was a physician, and uh, one of the things that he, it talks about here is that he uh, wants to write an orderly account. Now, that's in Luke chapter one. And so uh, that kind of goes with some of the comments that Robert was talking about. I think, you know, like he, his, he was very methodical. Right. And it's the way he wrote. And I think that lends itself to evidence to the. Um, the fact that he would he would not have left out the death of Paul or the uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. I, in fact, a lot of people I think look at Luke and Acts as like a two volume set. You know, like uh, you know, basically he just picks up and 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 I really I just really like the way that Luke Luke writes. You know, he's uh, because he is very methodical. Uh, you know, he recorded a lot of the parables, for instance, in in his gospel. And the other thing I just mentioned about Luke is he, as we read through Acts, there's a point where you you hear there's a lot of people moving from place to place. There's a lot of characters that come and go in, in the in the book of Acts and the narrative. And there's a point where it goes from they 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 to we 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 where where Luke joins them apparently. And just kind of, I don't know, just just some some things I sort of enjoy about the book, and just kind of curious if if you do as well. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Yeah. Robert, uh, you have thoughts on that? I mean, uh, I I largely agree. I I do think that it is Luke who wrote the book, and so it would be Luke the physician. Um, this is something that I put in my blog. I didn't mention out loud, but the the style of writing is consistent with how a physician would have written. Now, there's not enough in the text that just from the text you would conclude that a doctor wrote it. But if you know that a doctor wrote it or, or believe that maybe a doctor wrote it and examine the text to be to to see if it's consistent, yes, it does appear consistent. So 
Again, I think all evidence points to Luke being the author. I'm convinced that it is. There is pretty much no evidence against it. Um, but, and I will say this, um, scholarship, sadly, uh, has a bent towards originality, even if it's not well-intentioned. Essentially, scholars have a motivation to disagree with tradition because it makes them sound cool and edgy and they get published. And I, I'm not just saying that to throw stones. It's just the truth of the matter. So that's why people come up with wild theories. Thank you, Chris. We have one more request to speak. I know we're a little bit past the hour, but uh, I have time if you do, Robert. Yeah. So, VV, you're good to go if you're ready. Uh, yeah. Um, I was trying to write out my question or maybe uh, more so like a comment or observation because uh, it sounds like today we've been discussing a lot about um, who wrote what, when it was written, and trying to recount the the accuracy of of these events. Um, and it, it kind of, uh, Matt, you had kind of brought up some like modern day events. Robert, um, you had uh, cited the, the insurrection and the death of um, Officer Sicknick and how people are recollecting some of these uh, events. Uh, and some people will characterize it or mischaracterize certain events um, in order to paint a certain narrative. And um, I, I guess maybe sort of the observation I'm seeing is uh, the people who do this are trying to like push a certain selfish narrative or motive. And it reminds me of uh, when Jesus Christ was fasting and um, during his fast, uh, Satan, Lucifer, um, even though he's quoting the Bible and quoting scripture, he would quote it out of context or leave context out in order to try and manipulate and get certain behavior out of Jesus Christ. And um, I'm wondering in regards to maybe if I can twist this into a question uh, so I can learn something, um, learn so much from you guys, uh, how much uh, have you witnessed from our sort of um, uh, what do you call it, archaeologists or historical experts, um, how much have you noticed like they, they'll twist things to paint a certain narrative? I, I think in your previous um, example, they would kind of want to sound edgy or get published and stuff like that. How much more of that are you seeing today? Is it uh, extremely perverse in this sort of uh, school of practice? Just your thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm just going to be very candid here. I read a lot of this scholarship and I, there, there's, I see so much of that. There's so much of that of people who say things just because they want to be edgy. I know that's not a very technical way of phrasing it, but, but you guys get what I mean. Um, now I, I try to look at the arguments for what they are. I'm open to changing my mind on things like, you know, say, how should I interpret Genesis? Like, I want to learn and hear the different sides and, you know, whatever. Um, but it, it's hard to read scholarship sometimes because people really are not well-intentioned. Um, and this happens with any field, not not just uh, biblical scholarship. I would give a longer answer. I know we're almost out of time, but if, I'll just say this, like, if you you know, people who work in scholarship, if you've been a professor, if you've tried publishing, whatever, um, you can kind of see how crazy ideas like all of the gender ideology and all that catches on because 
there's a motivation to to publish things that you know might not be true and they will certainly get published they'll pass peer review uh and they get your popularity and you get invited to places and all of that and yeah that happens in other areas and help it happens in biblical scholarship and you just kind of have to cut through all of the noise to get to real scholarship and it's tough sometimes all right thanks vivi appreciate it uh robert did you have any closing thoughts before we wrap up for the night no, I am excited to to get to to Acts, and next time we will actually read part of chapter one. I already have the recording by my friend, and then we will discuss it. And uh, yeah, thank you for awesome. for sticking that, through all of these episodes. That delightful voice returns, you say, our narrator voice. Indeed. All right. <laughs> well, I look forward to that. Appreciate everybody's participation this evening, as always. Uh, As a reminder, if you missed any part of tonight's study, or if you'd like to listen back to prior studies, you can go to the Bible study page of the website. Uh, Every episode of the study from last year all the way up to tonight is available in an audio format that you can listen back to. Of course, there's Robert's blog posts as well. And on the Bible study page of the website, you can message either one of us too. Uh, So with with that, thanks for joining tonight. We will see you next week, uh, I hope, and every Friday going forward, 9 p.m., Eastern time. Have a great night.